for one final time, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5, in the closing verses. We've titled this series, Faithful Sojourners, Walking Worthy in a Wayward World. We've seen great and wonderful things in 1 Peter. I pray that and trust that our time in 1 Peter has been beneficial to you and for you. We know that God's Word is powerful. We know that God's Word shapes our lives. We know that God's Word is our guiding light, a lamp unto our feet. And especially so, and even so, in the midst of a dark and lost world. The Christians, believers like you and me, we can actually be faithful in this world. Not because you and I are particularly faithful, not because you and I are particularly righteous more than others, not because we are holier than thou, but simply because of the grace of God that we just sang. God's grace is powerful. God's grace changes. And that is our focus today is standing firm in God's grace. It's the title of our sermon for those of you taking notes, standing firm in God's grace. If you have had eyes to see, you've seen God's grace all over 1 Peter. It's been from the very beginning and it will be here in the very closing of 1 Peter. If you look just at the last section that we looked at last week in verse 10, he calls God the God of all grace. God is a gracious God. And there are many aspects of God's grace. Many people have many thoughts and ideas about what grace is in today's culture. And a lot of these thoughts and ideas have been contrived in the mind of man and have not been shaped and molded by God's Word. You see, we have God's Word as the revelation of God. So God's Word tells us who God is. God's Word tells us what God is like. We, you and I, don't have a blank canvas to say, well, what do you think God looks like? What do you think God is like? Because He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. And so all of His attributes are revealed in His Word. Namely, here, the attribute of the grace of God. And we see a lot about this grace of God here in 1 Peter. That will be how we spend our time today. We'll look at how God's grace is revealed here in this closing, how it has been revealed throughout the letter, and then what we are to do in response to that. If you will, please stand with us as we read God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12-14. through 14. This is the Word of the living God. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. God of all grace, we approach your throne this morning with our praise and our worship. We pray that it was well received in your ears this morning, that it was a sweet-smelling aroma before your throne this morning, that for a moment we were able to join the chorus of angels singing your praise and your worship. Lord, we pray that at this time, as we turn our attention to hear from you and your word, that you would speak clearly in your word, that you would use me, Lord, to speak clearly as I ought, that I would not share my own thoughts and opinions and give manly wisdom, but that I would give godly wisdom. I pray that you would bless both the preaching and the receiving of the word 
and the application of the word in all of our hearts for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. As I said, if you have had eyes to see, you see grace all over this letter, and you'll see grace all over your life as well. You'll see grace in the simple reality that after you have committed your first sin, you are allowed to continue to live. It's God's incredible grace and mercy towards you. You see grace in the things that God has provided for you. You see grace in creation. We see grace in God giving you taste buds. You know, he made food to taste good and gave you the ability to taste good food. And the church said, amen. That's the loudest amen we've ever had here. Hallelujah. Given us the common grace of music, of ears to enjoy music, of laughter, and so on and on and on we could go. And it is here in this closing section of these three verses. As I said this morning in Sunday school, we want to be careful that we never treat any words in God's word as though they are just filler words, as though they needed to write a 2,000-word essay and they needed to just fill up the space with a couple of extra words that you can use or, or leave behind. It doesn't really matter. It's up to you. No, every word here is important and every word matters. And so it is here in the closing. We can see the grace of God here in the closing. It says, by Silvanus a faithful brother. Silvanus might be a completely unknown name to you, but perhaps Silas is a more familiar name. Many scholars believe that Silvanus is another name for Silas, and they have good reason to, as, as Paul uses this name, Silvanus, as he writes in 2 Corinthians about an event that took place with Silvanus that is recorded for us in Acts. And in Acts, the name used there is Silas. Now that's an important detail, sure, but what is much more important is how Peter here is speaking of Silvanus. He calls him a faithful brother, and indeed he was. In Acts 15, 22, Luke writes that he was a, a leading man among the brothers. He was entrusted to take a letter to the Gentiles in Antioch at that time to encourage them in, in straightening out a few key issues that they were wrestling with as some people had been telling them that they needed to obey the Mosaic law. And so the elders and the apostles, they get together, they pen a letter, and they send it by the hand of Silas. These Gentile believers needed to know the truth. They were, they were wrestling with this and perhaps even beginning to doubt their salvation and saying, Lord, how, how, do we, how are we to think of these matters? And so there's the faithful brother Silas bringing the letter to the believers. He goes with Paul through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the brothers. It's Silas who's in jail with Paul singing hymns after midnight when the prison begins to shake and all of the doors open. Has that ever happened to you? Singing hymns after midnight. Silas is seen in or around very important action in Acts chapters 15 through 18. Here in our letter, Silvanus is playing another important role as well. Scholars point out that it's, it's possible that Silvanus was the one with the pen in his hand. And it's also possible that Peter is meaning to say that he's giving this letter to Silvanus to take to the believers. Silas, either way, Silas here is playing a very important role. He's playing an incredibly important role because think about this letter. Think about the things that Peter has written to the elect exiles and the dispersion and the important details that we have come across throughout our time together in 1 Peter. And it was the hand of Silvanus that was instrumental in getting this letter to the believers. So Peter calls him, rightfully so, a faithful brother. It's enough to be called a brother 
to be thought of as close in that regard, that we are both believers and members of the same divine family. That's a high enough compliment to be given. But then he adds another descriptive word and calls him faithful. What gracious words Peter is giving this man. So often we think of Scripture and we think of, you know, the the big name individuals, the King David, Abraham, Paul, so on and so forth. Because of this, we can be prone to want to be that kind of Christian. We want the big role to play. We want to be the one with notoriety. We want to be the one whose work is seen for generations to come. But how often are we perfectly content with simply being known as a faithful brother? Like Sylvanus. Here he is. He's a faithful brother. That is a high compliment to pay someone to be called a faithful brother or sister in service to the Lord. You know, Most of us probably don't think of Silas when we think of faithfulness, do we? If we were to go around and take a poll, none of us probably are going to write down the name of Silas or Silvanus. Most of us might not even really know who Silas is off the top of our head. But here's an apostle of the Lord Christ, and he's calling this man a faithful brother. What a great blessing to be known as faithful Because it is, in fact, that that we are called to in the Christian life. God has not called us to be, make sure that you're out there and you're seen and that you're well-known and that you're well-liked. What He's called us to is simple faithfulness. Oh, that we would all be the kind of person who would be perfectly content with simply being known as a faithful person brother or sister in Christ, even if no one knows our name. What a grace, in fact, to be known as faithful when outside of Christ, not one among us, not even Sylvanus or Peter or Paul or David, none of us would be known as faithful. But because of the work of God's grace in the man of this life, in the life of this man, he will now forever be known as a faithful brother. We also see grace in verse 13. Look at it with me. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Most likely, Peter here is using Babylon as a sort of code word for Rome. By this point in history, the well-known Babylonian empire has long been in ruins So he wouldn't be speaking of of that Babylon that we read of in the Old Testament. We see that truth in Revelation as well. The Babylon can be used as a term referring to a nation or a people who is exalted against God and against God's people. Which at the time of Peter writing this, Rome certainly was. They were against God and God's people. He says, she who is at Babylon... It's best to think of this as a sister church. And that's because he speaks of of her, of she, as being likewise chosen. Terminology that would be reserved for the people of God. So we could paraphrase this rather safely, I think, by saying, your sister church in Rome also sends you greetings. The usage of Babylon would be yet another reminder to the believers that they are exiles in a foreign land. The usage, you think back in the Old Testament, in the very popular Jeremiah 29.11, that God has a great plan for you to prosper you and to do good things for you. The context of, of that passage is they're, they're going to exile. They're going to be in exile for 70 years. They're going to be Slaves, and guess where? In Babylon. So this word, this term, Babylon, is going to bring up all of those thoughts and those ideas, all of that imagery of of when Israel, when they were off in captivity in Babylon, they were exiles. They were the people of God there, and they were not thought of in a kind way. 
They were quite literally displaced from their homes and taken to a foreign land. And so, you remember in chapter 1, he calls them the elect exiles in the dispersion. And here he is once again sort of bookending this by saying, you're not the only people who are exiles in this world. Here, there are other believers all across this world that are also elect exiles in the dispersion. If you look back at verse 9, chapter 5, we see this further reiterated because he tells us, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, again, they are not the only elect exiles. We see grace in this mention, in this gentle reminder of the universality of Christian suffering. That you're not alone when you suffer for Christ. In fact, this is just very normal. This is to be expected. And also, when Peter says that they are likewise chosen, they're believers, and they, believe, they became believers just like his audience did. Guess how? They were chosen of God. We are reminded that all of the believers all throughout time and space are only believers because they've been chosen of God. Now, what about Mark? How do we see grace in the mention of Mark? He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. It's likely that this is the same Mark that wrote the gospel of Mark and the same Mark who abandoned Paul and Barnabas in Pamphylia. He abandoned them. Acts 15 records for us that Paul told Barnabas that they should go back through all of the places that they had preached the gospel to see how the brothers were doing. And Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them. But Paul says no, because he had left them in other missionary work. And listen, this was such a problem. What Mark had done was so bad that they disagreed so heavily, Paul and Barnabas, that the scripture says they got into a sharp disagreement about this matter, and they even ended up splitting up. Barnabas went and took Mark with them. Paul didn't. All of this because of Mark's actions. Yet, here he is with Peter, evidently still giving some value and service, and hopefully having learned from his abandoning of the work. Think of the grace displayed there. It could have been that he's never thought of or mentioned ever again, and because of what he did, that he's cut off. But instead, there is grace at work in the life of Mark. The Lord saw fit to restore him in enough capacity that here he is with Peter, who calls him a son. It's a term of endearment for a younger spiritual family member. The same Mark who abandoned the missionary work, here he is, and he's being mentioned in Peter's letter that is encouraging believers. What absolute grace is seen in having messed up so tremendously and he's still being used of the Lord for some good work. What about the kiss of love? Isn't that kind of weird? Verse 14. It's the theological term, by the way, is kind of weird. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, let me say parenthetically here, we want to be biblical, but we're not likely to apply this to the life of the church anytime soon, okay? The kiss of love, that is. We see grace in Peter's directions here for them to greet each other with the kiss of love. Now, this was not romantic in any sort of way. It was a, a loving, familial way of greeting one another. The kiss of love, or as Paul calls it, he calls it the holy kiss. It was a gracious way of greeting another person. Peter is indicating that a people changed by grace ought to interact with one another in a gracious way. The community of those changed by grace ought to be marked by grace in their dealings with one another. All the more as they are experiencing suffering and troubles. 
Do they need to be gracious and kind and welcoming and hospitable to one another? The Christian community ought to be a refuge from the inhospitable nature of a world that is hostile against believers. This should be the place where where believers can gather around one another for warmth. Surely this is not a prescription, as I said a bit ago, for us to walk around kissing one another. We certainly live in a different context than they did at this time, but that does not negate the need for you and I to operate in a gracious manner towards one another. That this community, this community of people changed by grace, that we would operate in grace towards one another. Now, I do believe that we have a a welcoming and loving group of people here, and praise God for that. And may that ever be one of the marks of, of Flatland, the Flatland Bible Church, our family of faith, that we're gracious in our dealings, but most especially with other believers. Think about the author himself. We see grace in the life of Peter, don't we? Grace is certainly demonstrated in his life. Think back to when Peter walked with Christ You'll remember the well-known go-to text about church in, in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is asking, what do the people say about me? Who do the people say that I am? The disciples respond with various, various pleasantries of some sort. These are, these are good things that the people are saying about Jesus. And then he turns and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter promptly responds as, his, as is his nature. And he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus gives him wonderful high praise and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Then he tells him that he's going to build his church on this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's going to give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever he binds on earth will be bound on in heaven. Whatever he looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. Could you get any higher praise from the Messiah? From the Word become flesh? From the one who was with God, who is God? That is incredible high praise. I imagine that if we were Peter, we would be thinking, oh, all right, yeah. Thank you, Jesus. All right. You, you really made my day. Maybe we put our nose up in the air just a little bit. But as you know, it's not where the story ends. The very next paragraph. The very next paragraph. Here is Peter telling Jesus, actually rebuking Jesus. Jesus says that he must go and suffer many great things at the hands of the elders and the Pharisees. And Peter takes him aside and the scripture says that he rebukes Jesus. How much pride must be in this man's heart? You just said that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, and now you're rebuking him. This is incredible. And how does Jesus respond? He calls him the devil. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have your thing, your mind on things above. You have your mind on things of the earth. <laughs> this is just always such an astonishing story. I mean, you talk about the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Jesus personally, personally pronouncing a blessing upon him, telling him that the Father has divinely, supernaturally revealed something to him. And then he calls him Satan. That is mind-blowing. But even still, the story wasn't over there. Peter goes further, doesn't he? He denies Jesus three times. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he couldn't even stay awake in the garden. He couldn't even keep his eyes open. Here Jesus is at his final moments, sweating out blood, pouring out his heart before God the Father. And Peter's asleep. Can you imagine? Not long after that, the devil sifts him like wheat. He 
denies Jesus three times, even swears an oath that he doesn't know Jesus. But even still, Jesus shows this incredible sinner grace. And he restores him to his apostleship and uses him greatly. Peter goes on from not being able to stay awake during prayer with Jesus. I mean, with Jesus. You're praying with Jesus and you can't stay awake. He goes from that to Acts chapter 2. Spirit is poured out at Pentecost and Peter preaches the first sermon after the Spirit falls and 3,000 people come to Christ. Are you kidding me? What incredible grace. Peter has certainly come to intimately know of this grace of God that he's speaking of in, in, in his closing. He's, he's not just saying things. These aren't just theological terms. These aren't just good things to think about. He's saying, I know the grace of God. God has given it to me. God has shown it to me. And I have now spent a brief amount of time telling you about this grace. So, it makes perfect sense that when Peter begins to write a letter of encouragement and exhortation to the believers who are suffering, he doesn't write a letter that even one time says, hey guys, you got this. Believe in yourself. Not once do you find that in this letter. What does he say? This is the true grace of God. You can't do it. God already did it. You're not strong enough. God is strong for you. No, you're not enough on your own. God is more than enough. All throughout this letter. And so it is today. You and I need to hear of the true grace of God. We have plenty of songs that sing about the grace of God. Many popular preachers and authors and books and conferences about God's grace. Many professing Christians that love to talk about the grace of God. But how many of these are actually referring to what Peter says is the true grace of God? We can speak about the grace of God in a way that is not true. We're going to look at a little bit of that now. We can't think of grace in our terms. We don't assign to grace a meaning that Scripture never assigns to it. Because what ends up happening is instead of speaking of free grace that is freely offered, we then paint a portrait of cheap grace. So it behooves us to be reminded of this true grace of God. Look at chapter 1 with me. Glimpses of the grace of God. Five glimpses of the grace of God. There are a lot of ways that we could approach looking at Peter's teaching on grace or ways that we see grace in Peter's teaching. And since we've already gone through all of this letter, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time expounding each of these aspects of grace because we've already done that. But instead, this is a flyover of the letter to remind us of all of the ways that Peter shows us the true grace of God. The first way is immediately he shows us the grace of God in election. Look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, in Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The opening greeting, he's teaching us about grace. Elect here, meaning that we are the chosen people of God. That God himself has chosen a people to save. Exiles really only further reiterates that we are a select group of people in the world as exiles are people that are residing in a place that they are strangers to. You don't belong here. You're not from around these parts. You're an exile. Why? Because you are elect. You are chosen of God. As Christians, as we live in this world, we are awaiting a better city to come. This is just in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. And he's already giving us a view here of the triune God in salvation. 
He speaks of us being elected unto salvation by the foreknowledge of God. Look at it again. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. Not that God elected us because we chose Him and He saw that we chose Him and said, okay, I'll choose you back. That's not what happened. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God. That word, it has the sense of for loving. Because God for loved a people in eternity past before Genesis 1.1. Because He did that, He elected exiles unto salvation. This is an unmistakable way of saying you did not save yourself. You did not make a better decision than someone else because you chose to follow Christ. That's not what happened. You were chosen by God before the world was even formed. Salvation is entirely a work of God bestowing His free, unmerited grace upon a people whom He has chosen to love. It is incredible grace that God bestows upon believers as there is nothing either good or bad that we could have done to be saved because we were chosen before the world was even formed. Do you understand that? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Listen carefully. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. Do you know what that passage says? Every last aspect of salvation is done by God. It is God initiated. It is God motivated. God applies it. God purchased it. God did every last part of it. But the first and the last part are very important. Paul says, in love. God loved a people in eternity past. Can you even begin to fathom that? Before Genesis 1, that God loved you? What? But in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Christ. According to what, Paul? According to the purpose of man's will. According to the purpose of your choice. No. He says according to the purpose of His will. Why did He do it this way? Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. The ultimate display of grace is seen in salvation because in love He predestined us and He did this without any consideration of what you would do, who you would be. He loved you. And then He saved you. That's remarkable. But we also see the second glimpse is grace and salvation. Of course, Peter finishes that second verse by referencing the blood of Christ. And we are only making it two verses into this letter before we're confronted with the reality that Christ spilled His blood. He says, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. In order for there to be blood, blood had to be spilled. When we speak of Jesus' blood being spilled, we're speaking of His work on the cross when He gave His life, when His body was broken for us. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. And as we do, we are partaking of the bread which symbolizes Christ's body broken for us. That's why when we get the wafer, we break it in our hands. It's a symbol. It's a remembrance of what happened to Christ's body. And then we drink the fruit of the vine. And this reminds us that Jesus spilled His blood. That His body was broken. He took on a body like ours only to have it broken and pummeled at the hands of lawless Men, and he spilled his blood for us that we might be cleansed. This precious blood of Jesus washes us clean from our sin guilt and it purifies our depraved hearts. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. He himself, meaning Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
Verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, not because we chose for that to happen, is it? Because if you look back at verse 3 of chapter 1, it's because God chose us. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. This is clearly weighing heavily on the mind of Peter, faithful shepherd as he is, knowing that these believers who are enduring various trials need to be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ God did not need our help, your help, or these elect exiles. He did not need their help to bring them from death to life. He didn't do it by their power or by their choice even. Meaning that there was no magic set of circumstances that you brought to the table in being caused to be born again. God did the work. Salvation from beginning to end is entirely a work of God. So they needed to be reminded that they didn't save themselves. Now why? Why is that? Why would we even think that way? Why, why should we find comfort in that? Because they might be grieved by various trials. But these trials are not an indication of God's love for them in and of the trials themselves. No. What is the clearest statement of God's love for them is being caused to be born again according to the great mercy, love, and grace of God the Father before they were even thought of. That this was the plan for them. As Peter says in chapter 2, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you didn't receive mercy, but now you've received mercy He also gives us grace for the future, the third glimpse glimpse of grace. Chapter 1, verse 4, we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. You heard me say many times throughout our time in 1 Peter that, that Peter is writing with, with one eye on what's happening now and another eye on the future. And he's been very intentionally trying to set his audience's mind and our mind by extension, minds and hearts on the reality that though things might be very difficult now, though we might endure various trials and difficulties Now, though it might be necessary to suffer for the name of Christ, none of these trials or troubles indicate God leaving us or God no longer loving us. Instead, He's guarding us by His power. The power of God is upon and in the heart of the believer as they endure various trials, causing them to persevere. We have grace for the future Because we have a future hope. There is a future grace that we will receive. Not simply that one day everything in your life was going to be better. Listen, my friend, that might not be God's will for you. God's will for each of us in here might very well be to struggle and wrestle and be broken down and be persecuted and suffer and have a very, very hard time until you die. Wow, that's a great sermon, Matt. God loved Paul so much, they suffered. He sent him a thorn in the flesh. Paul writes, to torment me. Imagine that. A thorn in the flesh to torment me. See, you and I, we get so focused on things getting better and finding relief in this life and being comfortable and things finally getting to a place where I can breathe. But the Scriptures say, no, you can breathe right now because there is a future hope, a future grace that is blood-bought 
And it is sure. It is a fixed hope. It is immovable. So you can breathe right now. You can rejoice right now. You can be happy right now in the midst of it because of what Jesus did for you. Because there is more yet to come. My friends, isn't that enough? I mean, really? Isn't that enough? Probably one of the greatest things we, we struggle with is contentment. Just being plain old content with where God has me. With what God has given me. With the house that we live in. With the car we drive. With our position, with our titles. With, our, with whatever. But we're just content here. And God, if, if this is exactly what you have for me for the rest of my life, I will praise you anyway. I will worship you anyway. I'll pour my heart out for you anyway. Why? Because Christ spilled his blood. Why? Because there's a future hope. And even if I have my worst life for 120 years, and I'm miserable here for 120 years, I will have all of eternity to be full of joy and pleasures forevermore in the presence of my Savior. That's enough. It's the future grace that believers have. The future hope. It doesn't matter what it looks like here. And we saw grace in eternity past. We saw grace in Him saving us. We saw grace for eternity future. What about right now? We have grace for sanctification. In that opening, He said that He knew us according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He elected us, rather, in the sanctification of the Spirit. And then in verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, You've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God foreknew a people that he predestined unto salvation, that they might be sanctified. Peter shows us in verse 7 then, that trials only serve to purify us. We are not ruined in the flames of affliction. We are refined. Everything in the Christian life, what happens to you is meant to strip off your old nature and shape and mold you into the image of the Son. And my friend, that work will not finish until you are in glory with the Lord. Every single waking moment in the Christian life is meant for that end. That's the point of Romans 8.28, by the way. Listen, Romans 8.28 and 29, you have to keep reading. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, amen, hallelujah, let's put it on a coffee mug. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you understand that the very nature of you needing to be conformed to a different image means that the current image that you bear is not good enough? You need to be shaped and molded into a different image, into the image of Christ. Yes, God created you uniquely, and He's given you unique personality and unique giftings, absolutely. Being a Christian does not annihilate that or obliterate that. However, there are things in each one of our personality, in our way of thinking, in our affections, in, in who we are as a person that must be shaped and molded into the image of Jesus Christ. And sometimes that is so innate and built into the very fabric of who we are that it takes the fire of trial and affliction for that to burn away. What does that mean? We don't just sit around. Sanctification is not just sitting around. And eventually it just happens to you. You wake up and, wow, I'm in the image of Jesus. Wow. No, it takes a lot of work and it takes trials and God uses difficulty in your life to burn away impurities so that you look more and more like Jesus. 
Well, if we would think that way in the midst of trials, I guarantee you, we would be way less miserable when we suffer. Instead, we would be like those disciples in Acts when they were beaten. What happened? They walked away. They jumped for joy. Could you imagine that? Imagine. I'm so thankful. Bloody, black eye, broken leg. I'm so happy. I was thought worthy to suffer for Jesus. But how often is our mindset the exact opposite? I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want things to be difficult. Paul Washer at this conference that we were at recently, he was speaking of Christian suffering and how there were missionaries in the field suffering day in, day out. And here in America as Christians, we, don't, we are so wanting to protect ourselves from any measure of suffering. We don't want it. But Scripture would tell us to choose suffering. That we would say, I want that. That here is retirement at an early age with a lot of money, travel the world. Here's pour out your life, barely live above poverty level. And you say, I want that one. Because right here, I'm going to serve the Lord. He didn't call me to comfort. He called me to be crucified with Christ. He called me to take up my cross. And so God enables us with grace to live this way because you and I will never choose that. We won't. It's not in our nature. I won't. I'll be the one to be honest here. In my own nature, I don't want that. But he tells us in chapter 1, verse 18, you were ransomed from your feudal ways. God bought you out of that way of thinking. And in chapter 2, verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. This is the grace of God seen in sanctifying us from our old ways. The beauty of salvation is not simply that he saves us from the wrath meant for us because of our sin. It's that he saves us from the desire of that sin. That we no longer want it anymore. But we want now God. Fifth, the grace to serve. Chapter 4, verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. This is very clear and very simple. God has blessed his church by giving the people the grace of gifts to use in service to the church. This happens both at a larger scale when, when God has gifted certain men in a unique way, that they are a blessing to believers across many generations, across different places in the world. We can think of church history, think of Augustine and, and Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones and in today's culture, someone like a John MacArthur, think of the apostles. These were part of God's gift to his church in Ephesians 4. He gave the apostles. These are gifts to the church. But he also uniquely gifts every one of you who are believers. That you don't need to be a John MacArthur or a Charles Spurgeon and bring thousands and who knows an untold number of people to Christ, write books and speak at conferences. But he's given you a gift. And he intends for that gift to be given to his church. Because you see, when he gifts you, it's not for you. He gifts you to gift his church. He's giving to his church through you. Through the talents and the gifts that he has uniquely given you. So, we could go on and on and on. But I want to look very lastly word, very last word. He says, I've written briefly to you. And that's why we could spend forever speaking of the grace of God, but this is a brief look at it, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, and then the imperative, stand firm in it. Notice the progression of the letter that Peter did not begin the letter by telling these people to stand firm. He didn't open up and say, hey guys, get, get it together, stand firm. Instead, he began by telling them and reminding them of the grace of God. 
and all of the ways that God's grace is manifested in their lives and around them. And even here in the closing, Peter's first word is about the grace of God. And then he says to stand firm. Standing firm, following what God has said, without standing in God's grace, my friend, that's legalism. It's moralism. That is old, dead religion. We don't preach people to be a better person. We preach that people be a new person, new in Christ by the grace of God, and they are empowered then to do all of these things that he teaches in 1 Peter. This is the difference between free grace and cheap grace. Free grace demands your life and your all. Cheap grace demands nothing of you. Cheap grace, you can take and say, thank you very much, I'll go and do as I please now, and I'll go to heaven one day. Free grace is meant to be stood in. This is a word that means be immovable. Stand firm in God's grace. And so that's the call for you and I. As we meditate on and think about the grace of God shown to us in these five brief glimpses and all throughout Scripture and throughout redemptive history, it is meant for us to do something with it. We are called, as the series was titled, to be faithful sojourners. So then, my friends, let's be faithful sojourners by standing firm in the grace of God so that we might walk worthy in this wayward world.